Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife podcast. This is your host, Agnes. And today I have the great pleasure and real privilege to be speaking with Stephen Kotler. Hi, Stephen. How are you? So, Stephen, uh, I have uh, heard your voice uh, when I was looking, uh, listening to the audio book of Bold. So you kindly guided me through that book. Um, and I really appreciate always when the authors uh, read their own work. And it was it was a fantastic book and, and really, really inspiring. So... We've been looking forward to speaking with you since then. Let me just introduce you very briefly. Stephen Cutler is a New York Times best-selling author. He's an award-winning journalist, and he's also the co-founder director of research for the Flow Genome Project, um, which is fascinating already in itself. And and he's one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. So. The previous book was Bolt, which you co-wrote with uh, Peter Diamandis, and the new book Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs and Maverick Scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. Um, Stephen, if I may turn over to you to explain to our listeners globally who are who maybe haven't heard of the Genome Project or your book, um, what is your passion? What drives you? and how you came to writing this new book, Stealing Fire. Well, you know, I since I was a kid, I've been fascinated by kind of ultimate human performance. What does it take to be our best when it matters most? And I got really interested really in the question of what does it take to do the impossible? And so I've, I've written eight books, and in each of them, I've looked at that question from a different angle. You talked about bold. That was a, you know, we examined, you know, innovators, entrepreneurs, people like Larry Page and, you know, Richard Branson and, and Elon Musk, who are taking on kind of impossibly grand challenges in the world and building, you know, amazing businesses on the backs of them. Uh, and then, you know, Rise of Superman, uh, I looked at athletes pushing the boundaries of kinesthetic possibility. So the new book, Stealing Fire, is an extension of that. It's it's sort of, you know, in all our work at the Flow Genome Project and in, the, in these books, we spend a lot of time with you know, the leading high-performing organizations in the world. And, um, you know, they're meeting with us because they want to learn more about flow. And Stealing Fire sort of grew out of what we started to learn from all these other organizations um, along the way. 
Um, now, uh, a question before we go maybe uh, in more detail into the book. Um, when you have done all this research and, and you have interviewed really the people, pioneers, uh, on, you know, on the living head of, of humanity and, and performance, I guess what goes on in perhaps in the head of, of our listeners is, you know, why bother trying? I, I'm never going to be like Elon Musk or or these people have been born under the right conditions at the right time. They had some opportunities which I may never have. So uh, how much do you think talent um, and some genetics play in this and how much can be acquired? Could anybody really apply these techniques and become Elon Musk or or are there still differentiators that, you know, some of us are, are just not cut out for? Well, you know, you're asking all kinds of questions wrapped up in that one. Here's what I can say. I study flow states, which are peak performance states, right? They're the states where we feel our best and we perform our best. And the things that we know about flow, right? Whether you call it runner's high or being in the zone or being unconscious, right? It refer, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Those moments of kind of rapt attention and total absorption. In those states, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go up through the roof. So here's what we know about flow. We know it's ubiquitous. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at the University of Chicago back in the 70s did discovered in kind of one of the largest kind of global psychology studies ever conducted that the state is universal. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And we know that the boost that comes from flow, and this is research done by everybody from McKinsey to DARPA, and I could break it down for you more, but the numbers are a 500% boost in productivity, a 400 to 700% boost in creativity, learning accelerates to 470%, really huge boost in skills. Um, so what we know is everybody can access this state, so everybody can significantly up-level their performance. As far as can everybody be Elon Musk, uh, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of nature-nurture questions that I don't have the answers to, right? On that one, there's a whole bunch of like, is this more IQ versus is this more creative talent and how much of that is innate and how much of it is acquired? Those are open questions, big, big, big questions. But I have really looked at kind of innovators in every domain at the upper levels of performance, as you pointed out, and I've noticed a couple of things. One is that they all tap into flow and kind of into, you know, a slew of kind of non-ordinary ecstatic states of consciousness um, on a regular basis. And I've also noticed that if you want to be the best dry cleaner in Espanola, New Mexico, you're going to work just as hard as Elon Musk. And the only thing different is the size of the vision. So I don't know if everybody can be Elon Musk, but I do know that there's only 24 hours in the day. And I've met, you know, the hardest working dry cleaner in Espanola, New Mexico. And I know how hard, you know, he and his whole family work. Right. And I've spent, as you've said, time with a lot of these top innovators and I see how hard they work. And there's no difference. Right. The vision, what they're working on, what they're doing, very different. Um, but it's really just the size of the vision. That's the starting point. And, I, and by the, I mean, you know, Peter Diamandis wanted to open the space frontier. Nobody had done that. And he surrounded the problem. He tried to build a company everywhere around that issue. 
and he tried to engage as many other smart people in his enterprise as possible. And the last thing I want to say is even in bold, one of the reasons that we chose those innovators is that none of them, they all came from sort of lower middle class childhoods. Nobody had a disaster for a childhood for sure, but they weren't born on third base. So it, and it's important to kind of know that. I think it's, I mean, first I'd, I'd like to also just give a shout out because my niece went to the space university in Strasbourg and it was great reading and listening in bold, you know, how that idea came from nothing. I call it the greatest scam in history. Peter Diamandis starts a summer camp for super geeks. He runs it for a couple of summers for a couple of weeks and he turns it into a $25 million international space university with a gorgeous campus and the top professors in the world that now trades anybody who wants to go into space. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and I think that what you just said before is so important, the size of the dream, you know, getting, making something from nothing and, and imagining really, really filling out your imagination with the smells and the sounds and how it will feel and how it will be like. I think uh, I've read just a couple of articles just, just very recently where um, there are some of the, the people now are starting to say that the only role of school should be to teach children to dream. Would you agree with that from, from your own research? No, I would say that was really dumb. <laughs> I, I, I mean, by the way, you have to teach people to dream big. It's, I mean, it, it's a very big priority. And I'll, so, and I'll talk in a second a little bit about the science behind it because it's interesting for a second. Um, but there are flow shows up, for example, when we are using our skills to the utmost, when we're learning, really trying to up level, and that's a really gritty, in the trenches kind of thing. Right. That's how that takes place. And dreaming is, you know, it gets you into the game. Dreaming big gets you into the game. But like all you did is walk through a door and said, oh, OK, cool. This is how we're going to play. And so let me put some reps of science around it because it's neat. And I write about this in Rise of Superman. Um, so, you know, who Roger Bannister is right. Who ran the first four minute mile. Yeah. OK, so. uh it took him forever to do it, right? It was considered an absolute impossible. And if you look at the mile times over the previous 50, 60 years, they go down like a quarter second, a decade towards a mile, really slow progress. The interesting thing is Roger Bannister runs a four minute mile and, you know, a month later, somebody else does. And a year later, somebody else does. And then within five to 10 years, teenagers have done it. And you got to ask yourself, how is this possible? What changed, right? The actual running the sub four mile has not changed. It's still the same physical test. It always was. All that changes is the mental frame we built around the activity, what used to be impossible. And literally, like there were articles in written by doctors, op-eds in the New York Times that said Roger Bannister is going to need a hearse waiting for him at the finish line. It's going to kill him. They really thought it was impossible. Um, and, but yet, it, suddenly it's possible. And then you know, five people do it in five years, including a teenager. And so this is called the banister effect. And what it means is there's an extremely tight coupling between kind of physiology and psychology. Um, 
And you can see it organizationally when Google, who we looked at in bold, um, you know, they go after 10x moonshots. And 10x moonshots, one of the reasons they're doing it is they're building a giant frame around a problem, right? They're, they're going a thousand percent performance improvement. So they have to throw out all the existing technology and assumptions and really kind of start from scratch. And when you go that big, sometimes that's really helpful. So uh, we're seeing, you know, sort of the banister effect and this idea of framing impossible, reframing the impossible, you know, being deployed in top organizations around the world already. Um, so now maybe going a little bit more into your new book, Stealing Fire, um, that you have co-authored with Jamie Wheel. And you've spent what I've read four years investigating these uh, leading edges uh, of high performance from Navy SEAL teams to the Google uh, complex, the Burning Man Festival, and, and also Richard Branson's Necker Island. Um, how did you, just maybe rolling back the time, how did you um, decide to uh, continue and, and perhaps talk a little bit about the Flow Genome Project? How did you take it from all your different books? What was the trigger that you said, let's look at this? And, and what was the perhaps the research question that came that you wanted and went out to investigate in, in stealing fire? Well, what, so we at the flow genome project, we're a research and training organization. And on the research side, we're the largest open source research project into ultimate human performance in the world. And on the training side, we work with everybody from kind of governments through major tech firms, through, uh, U S special forces. And, um, what was interesting and what started to happen is you have to you have to back it up and understand that we teach people about flow and whatever else you want to say flow is an altered state of consciousness right our sense of self disappears time passes very strangely we get kind of buoyed by this huge burst in motivation and we seem to be filled with inside information right we understand why this is happening but like it's an altered state going out to the world's leading organizations and, and even like mainstream, you know, Wall Street business companies and things like that, training them up in the use of an altered state of consciousness, which is what, you know, we were doing at the Flow Genome Project. I found, Jamie found strange, right? It was not business as usual, especially, you know, the way we were raised. It just really wasn't. And, but the crazy part wasn't that. That was, we thought that was crazy. And, but everywhere we went, it didn't matter who we were meeting with, people were coming up to us and they were telling us that they were hacking their consciousness with a wide variety of state changing techniques and technologies all to amplify performance. And it was really the range. I and mean, we met, you know, wall street guys zapping their brains with electrodes to induce altered state of consciousness, heightened creativity before they went out on the trading floors, radar operators who were doing the same thing. We met people practicing kind of, practicing advanced sexual technologies that altered consciousness and they were using it to improve performance and strengthen relationships. And we met teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies that will go unnamed that told us they were microdosing with psychedelics for the enhanced creativity on a regular basis or Navy SEALs who'd come back from two weeks silent meditation retreats and really caught our attention. Everywhere we went, we were talking about flow, one particular altered state of consciousness, but people were using a lot of different techniques to shift consciousness that caught our attention. Right. And we asked a couple of questions. The first question is, you know, is this just a random assortment of altered states or do they have anything in common? 
And that's actually not a new question. A hundred years ago, William James, sort of the godfather of American psychology and philosophy, and pointed out that a certain bandwidth of the altered state spectrum. So altered states, they stretch from streams on one end to schizophrenia on the other. But in the middle are the so-called ecstatic experiences, awe, flow states, meditative states, contemplative states, mystical states like trance states or speaking in tongues, out-of-body experiences, and psychedelic states. And he thought these were all the same thing. He thought they're, you know, they may have all these different names, but they seem to do the same thing to us psychologically. And they seem to improve performance in similar ways. And psychology sort of forgot about it. We took a detour. And 100 years later, we now have the tools to kind of look under the hood of the brain and figure out that actually he was right. All of these states share very similar underlying neurobiology. They all shift us out of what is you know, what you call 21st century normal, which is a particular pattern signature in the brain, into a very specific region of, of changes. Changes in neural anatomical function, brain waves, neurochemistry, they're very, very similar. So all these disparate groups who thought they were all doing totally different things, chasing states totally different way, right? Like soccer moms with yoga practices do not think they're doing the same thing as the Dave Asprey biohacking crowd, who do not think they're doing the same thing as the US Navy SEALs and Wall Street traders and Google and take your pick, right? They think they're doing different things. Turns out they're all chasing the same things and they're doing it for the same reason. Um, so, that is where we started. Like, what is going on? Why is this happening? The science makes some sense, but this really, it seemed like a revolution. We put some numbers around it. We found out that, you know, what we were really looking at was a trillion dollar underground revolution. There was a lot of, a lot of money involved, a lot of people involved, and it was moving from the cutting edge in much more into the mainstream. And that there were four forces who were sort of accelerating this, this, this movement. And it was really, really changing everything we thought we knew about high performance. It's super interesting. And um, just when you uh, mentioned about, you know, going into the mainstream and, and what you when you were speaking, what came to my mind is to ask you whether you think that um, is there perhaps now a time when all of these aspects of the way we work, how we work, what kind of tools we use to get into peak performance or flow states, whether all this is perhaps less of a taboo? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? I mean, that was in 1997, which is when I first, 19, maybe 2000, 1999, I think, which is the first time I actually really started working on the science of this, getting to know scientists who were working in these fields. I remember talking to Dr. Andrew Nurberg at the University of Pennsylvania, who did some really foundational work, and he risked tenure to do this work. And, you know, here we are today, and it's everywhere. I mean, just look, just for, forget, you know, academia for a second, but 44% um, of American companies are going to roll out mindfulness-based programs this year, right? 20 years ago, meditation was something done by kind of the hippie fringe. Yoga, yoga was the same thing, yoga, right? I mean, like the way we talk about it is like, if you look at like, for most of the 20th century, flow was the domain of artists and athletes. Psychedelics belonged to hippies and ravers and um, meditation and yoga belonged to seekers and saints, right? And none of these people would talk to one another. Like, you know, they're not cohort groups, they're strangers to one another. And yet what the research now shows 
is they're all doing the same thing. So one of the things that Stealing Fire really is about is it's trying to kind of unite a bunch of disparate tribes and give us a clean, scientifically backed language to talk about well, what's been going on. Yeah, that's what I was, you know, also thinking when you were saying that we have now this amazing platform that we can connect and understand how, oh, yeah, what you've been doing is the same thing I was doing. And I, we see this also when now, uh, for example, with the issue of sleep. So I, I have to tell you, I, I was with uh, Chase Jarvis, who does Creative Live last week. And we at the Flow Genome Project, like when we work with organizations, we train you up in, 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 in flow for sure, but we also train you up in a bunch of high performance basics, sleep hygiene first and foremost. And I have been talking about the importance of nap rooms in offices for five years now. And I was at Chase's office and for the first time in my life, I actually saw nap rooms. I was so thrilled. Absolutely. And I think that's, that, that's what we see when we look at uh, maturity levels of companies that the most mature they really get and they go into these sensitive fields, which, you know, it can have a lot of awkward conversation in not maybe in the Navy SEALs, but in a normal kind of average corporation, um, talking about these things is still seen as very private. Is still, that's, that's your business as an employer. That's none of my business. And, and bringing some of these basic neurological, physiological functions that we need to be our best at work is, I think, absolutely revolutionary. I, uh, I, I mean, I think two things. What we're seeing at, with the elite organizations is that they're already adopting these practices, right? They're already rolling them out and, and they're doing it at a really significant level. They're, they're really putting energy into it. And the boost you get from being able to kind of, the, you know, what the research consistently shows, if you're talking about, you know, the states of consciousness that we've been discussing is they have real, real success kind of reducing anxiety, healing trauma, significantly increasing our access to, you know, creative problem solving, high speed decision making. And they also boost collaboration and cooperation. So you get much better organizational wide function as well. And the, the numbers are very high. Um, and I, you know, I, I hesitate, I, you know, I mentioned them earlier. I, it's hard for me to, they're so high, they sound ridiculous unless you unpack the science of why they're that high. But, um, you know, every, you know, one of the interesting things, for example, for organizations is that Ari Degoose, who was the head of innovation for Royal Dutch Shell, did a global study of the world's longest lived companies, companies that have been around 100 years, 200 years, 400 years, 700 years, companies that have faced every single challenge imaginable that we face today, from ice ages through famines and wars. And recent, I mean, like literally, and he came to one conclusion, which is the what what all these companies shared the longest of companies in history they only had one thing in common which is they had all figured out how to learn faster than this competition he called it only sustainable long-term corporate advantage right and what we know about flow is it, it to get you into the state for example to get you into even deep meditative states or some of the psychedelic states you get a dump of five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce and a quick short plan for how learning and memory work is the more neurochemicals that show up, the faster some, or the better chance something has of moving from short-term holding into long-term storage. So you get this huge dump of five neurochemicals and in research run by DARPA, for example, the U.S. Defense Department's big think arm, 
They found soldiers in flow could learn 470% faster than normal. They could cut Malcolm Gladwell's fabled 10,000 hours to mastery in half. So that's, I mean, that's an incredible boost and more so in the modern world when you think about, you know, to be an innovator, to be an entrepreneur, how many things you have to get really good at, how many different talents you need to master along the way. And these states of consciousness, just forget everything else they do. Just they cut learning times in half. Um, it's a huge boost and that, you know, and we're starting to be able to artificially induce flow using technology, other stuff like that. So, you know, you can get there a lot faster, a lot more reliably, a lot more on demand. And, you know, we talk about it as cognitive literacy, right? You need to understand how your psychology and your neurobiology, how you, the, you know, your brain and your body work and if you can, you can really take control of your performance at the foundational level. You mentioned um, just before the four forces that have been leading to this, this revolution. Would you mind maybe just giving a, a short overview of, of what they are? For sure. So the first, the, the, the idea here is that when we put, try to put numbers around this, we were like, wow, this is really big. The number we actually came up with was $4 trillion. And I can break that down for you later if you want. Um, and uh, then we realized that that was, number was only going to grow. And the reason was there are these four, we call them the four forces of ecstasy, right? But what they do is it's psychology, neurobiology, technology, and pharmacology. They're the four domains that sort of surround altered states of consciousness, right? And as each of these domains advance, we gain deeper and more understanding. And if you read bold, so you understand that like, you know, once technology becomes an information technology, it jumps on the back of Moore's law and it starts doubling on a regular basis, right? It moves exponentially. Well, all these, you know, all of these uh, forces have become information technologies, right? So they're all advancing at incredible rates. In fact, you know, psychology, which is becoming a big data science and, and neurobiology, you know, if you put them under the category of biotechnology, Biotechnology is now moving so fast, it's advancing at five times the speed of Moore's Law. It's literally doubling in power every four months, which is why, you know, we've gone from five years ago, the very first bionic body part on the market introduced to 50% of the human body being replaceable by bionics in five years, right? Like that's what's driving that. But that same force is also driving, you know, mental high performance. And, you know, that's what we're seeing uh, with those forces. Technology is not just, you know, helping us tune these states with increasing precision and, you know, giving us, let me put it in context. So 1990s, Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin does studies on Tibetan Buddhists who had put in 30,000 hours of meditation time or 30 years. And he discovered that their brain waves sort of held steady in the gamma range, which is neat because gamma is a, is a brain wave that tends to show up during the aha breakthrough moments. When a bunch of new ideas come together for the first time, you have a breakthrough insight, right? Archimedes in the bathtub, that kind of thing. So what this meant was that meditation could tune your brain for creative self-discovery. The problem was, wasn't a very useful thing for, you know, business and technology because you had to sit in a cushion for 30 years, right? So cool things happen. First, in 2009, the University of North Carolina, they realized that it actually doesn't take 30 years. In fact, you know, they had gotten it down to 15 months and then 12 months. And then 
they did a reset. They looked at extremely short term meditation, four days, 20 minutes a day of mantra based meditation. And they found four days was enough to start down regulating your nervous system. So less anxiety and improving your decision making and creative problem solving abilities. Um, and I didn't quite push you into the brainwaves and the gamma waves. You got to do a little closer. And then now we have neural technology, right? EEG headsets available to consumers, plug them into your phone. And suddenly you can train your brainwaves to steer towards that gamma range. And you can do what, you know, monks took 30 years to do in a couple of weeks. That's really interesting. So that's what's happening in technology. What's also happening is technology is allowing us to take this stuff to scale. Um, right. So what used to be 50 people around a campfire is now 250,000 at a festival. And finally, pharmacology is allowing us to tune these states of consciousness with just incredible precision, giving access to uh, them to us nearly on demand and kind of open source approaches to pharmacology, which have been really locked up in labs and tightly controlled are showing up. So the information is out there already. So the point is all these things are happening, right? Like this is going on now. They're going to keep accelerating. We're going to gain, you know, better precision, longer reach, all that kind of stuff. It's a really exciting time. What really fascinates us here at the Work Life Hub and, and as our, our listeners are also mostly, I guess, either researchers studying work and the relation between work and non-work um, or employers, HR, CSR, all kinds of, you know, systems that exist in enterprises and companies for the processes one of the issues that really fascinates us here is perhaps the growing gap between companies organizations who get it and who jump on this bandwagon and those who just oh, you know what is this we don't need this our, our, our people went to university and we taught them the skills and now they should just do it so is this something that you may confirm, something you see as well, um, or perhaps not, whether we will see this growing gap and then those who are on the leading edge, they will be able, just as already now, for example, in Silicon Valley, but more globally attract the talent, those who are open to this, those who want to achieve, who, who are driven and passionate. And then some of the companies and organizations are just really going to be left behind. What, what do you think? Well, let me come at it from, a, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. Let me come at it from a slightly different angle for a second. Um, so Gallup did a recent survey on, you know, employee engagement. I don't know if you saw it, um, right? And it, it's 83% of American workers are disengaged or quote unquote actively disengaged on the job, which has got to be like actively disengaged has to be my favorite business euphemism ever. It means I hate what I do so much. I'm going to go out of my way to sabotage my company. That's what actively disengaged means, right? That's a level that that's a level of employee dissatisfaction that's just off the charts, right? But what we also know is that the remaining 17% are employees who have jobs that generate flow, right? And these are dream workers. They have dream jobs. They come in early. They stay late. Um, they, they love what they do. They are passionate, creative, great, you know, great people to work with. And that's a that's a huge gap. Right. Companies know this. And so 
Yeah, and the other thing is this. Here's the, here's, here's the more important thing. Forget these other states of consciousness for a second. Let's just talk about flow and, and what we've seen. We did, we know, and we've learned over the past couple of decades that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 20 of them in total. Organizations that are very good at this start building their organizations around these triggers. And you can do this at a small, medium, and large level. And for example, Patagonia routinely rated one of the top companies to work for in the world. They let their employees make their own hours. Useful because autonomy is a flow trigger. Flow is a state of high performance. So they gain a little flexibility. They like the company a little better. It's one of the reasons Patagonia tops a lot of lists of you know best places to work in America, one of many. Um, and one of the reasons is not only did they give their employees flexibility, um, but they also, you know, by giving them that autonomy, it primes them for peak performance states. They do a lot of other things and I can sort of keep going on Patagonia or Google or, or whatever, but it's just a really simple example. I'll give you another example, um, that we see often. And so one of the things that we know about flow is it's a state of focused attention, which only shows up when a most of, if not all of our attention is focused in the present moment. Research shows us that the best blocks are 90 to 120 minute blocks. Those are long swatches of block of time. Um, you can do it in shorter periods, an hour or so, but um, you really, you, you, it's sort of non-negotiable. And this means that organizations that have 15 minute return my message laws and in an hour to return an email, you know, rules are killing themselves. Yeah, they're interrupting. Right. They're yeah. interrupt, right. And the research shows that um, if you get knocked out of flow, research on coders actually in Silicon Valley who really need flow, right, to do their job, um, they can get knocked out in a minimum 15 minutes So um, to get back in if you can get back in at all. So you're really costing valuable time. Yeah, it's, it, it resonates also with um, what we're looking at a lot is remote work and working from home. And people who are allowed to work from home, they report much higher level of engagement and satisfaction. And also their performance is much better because, you know, you're not interrupted by your colleagues, by phone calls so often or, you know, here listening to, to your colleagues speaking. But, but you can really take this time and, and focus. And I think... One of the most important things is, is self-awareness that you can understand what are your triggers and you can put your finger on the feeling when it's coming, right? <laughs> that if, if I know that this is happening, then I don't go and, and start calling other people or put on the laundry, whatever it is, but I, I, I grab it and I, and I embrace it and then I shut everything out. I think that's perhaps also social interaction where you, you might not be able to do this in in a work setting but you could do that at home or in these meditation rooms in these isolated rooms if you have open plan it's quite difficult yeah you know i agree with that and and and, and there are interestingly there's group flow right that's a team performing at their right so there so, yeah, so there, there's individuals in flow, and then there, there's there's a team performing at the peak. And you've you've experienced it if you've taken part in a great brainstorming session where everybody really comes together and the level of creativity goes through the roof and the ideas are really generative and powerful. That's group flow in action. If you saw 
a fourth quarter comeback in football, the Super Bowl this year. Great example of group flow in action. A um, lot of, you know, a lot of companies really, really prize group flow, um, even over individual flow. Um, so there are different approaches to each. And, so, you know, I what, what I think is, is that you need mixed use plans. You, the open plan has some advantages for certain kinds of group creativity, group, you know, teamwork, all that sort of stuff. Um, and is, is a fluid, interesting environment in certain occasions. But you also have to have rooms where anybody can go hide and nobody can disturb you. And there's no email, phones, you know, you both ends. You know, we I spent some time with Sterling Partners in Chicago, and they've done they sort of redesigned their office to really kind of heighten performance, kind of across the boards, and really kind of try to maximize flow. And they've done really neat things from individual like work pods that are like eggshell cocoons that people can go into and just shut off the world. And they're sort of positioned around the the thing. They actually put a walking track in around all their open. They have part of their offices open office plans, but there's like a pacing track because one of the things, and this is research we cover in Stealing Fire, is there are really strong body-brain connections, right? And sometimes to really do your best thinking, you got to be moving the body. Whether, you know, whether there, so, you know, a lot of exercise programs are really important, right? We're seeing a huge rise in corporate fitness, thank God. Um, but there's also like, you know, movement on the job and they like literally employees can get up and kind of pace and talk on the phone and, or go for long walks or do whatever they need, you know, while at the office, which, um, I really, I just thought it was super, an innovative way of approaching high performance. Yeah. We're, we're great fans of walking meetings as well. I think nothing beats a good walk in a forest and talk about your projects. I agree with that. Now, Stephen, uh, I have a million other questions. But I know your time is precious and I'm already very grateful that you took the time to, to speak here uh, with me today. Before we go to the last question, may I just ask you to tell listeners where they can find the book? What's the best way to learn more about the Flow Genome Project, about your work, um, how they can perhaps reach you? Perfect. Um, so more about the book, stealingfirebook.com is everything you need to know is, is there um, for the flow genome project. It's flow genome project, F L O W G E N O M E project.com. And there you'll learn everything about us, everything about, you know, from trainings we offer, you'll find a free flow profile. So if you want more flow in your life, this is a traitology. It says if you're this kind of person, you're likely to find flow in these general directions. So it literally gives anybody a place to start. Um, and if you want to know more about me or you want to get in touch with me, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Kotler, K-O-T-L-E-R.com. Um, that's how to find me. And if you actually want to know more about the flow triggers, if you sign up for my email newsletter, um, you will get a free PDF that sort of breaks down what all the triggers are, what the research shows about them and how to start applying them in your business and work life. Fantastic. Um, now, coming to the last question, uh, which is more or less always the same here. If I could ask you, uh, Stephen, to give one advice to a CEO of a company um, for them to start thinking about creating an enabling environment to help employees get into the flow state and, and 
embrace the idea of altered states of consciousness and, and performance, what would be your advice? Where can they start? So can I give a slightly longer answer to this question? Sure. There's always room for negotiation with me. All right. I'm negotiating with you because I like I have an answer to your question, but I like what I, I want to walk you in through the research. Great. So over the past 20 years, a blizzard of scientists from a blizzard of disciplines from like anthropology through zoology through psychopharmacology have discovered that pretty much every mammal on the planet some birds, even a few insects, have found ways to alter their consciousness on a regular basis. And we see this in human children. They will hyperventilate. They will roll down hills to get dizzy. They will spin in circles. We see it all over the animal kingdom. Birds will chew on marijuana seeds. Cats will get high on catnip. Jaguars will do ayahuasca. Baboons will do iboga. The list really goes on and on and on and on. And so the question scientists start to ask is, what the hell is going on, right? Like stone birds do the same stupid shit that stoned humans do. They fly into car windows and go splat, right? So the question was, well, what is going on? And what the answer is, is they started to realize is that changing the channel on consciousness, sort of turning off normal waking consciousness, getting beyond our normal sense of self, things along those lines is fundamental to creative problem solving. The way you know, it's been explained is pretty much every animal on the planet gets stuck in ruts, right? They'll do the same thing over and over and over, not getting different results. They need to innovate and to innovate, they need to get a wider perspective. And the easiest way to do that is to alter their consciousness and bounce up and get that wider perspective. So these altered states of consciousness that we're talking about are actually the tool that evolution designed to solve certain kinds of challenges. What's more interesting is how powerful that tool is. Scientists now talk about what they call the urge towards intoxication as a fourth evolutionary drive. It is as powerful as our first three drives, sex, sustenance, and shelter, right? So it is a, it is a biological drive. When Jamie and I wrote Stealing Fire, we measured the altered state economy, which is how much money do people spend trying to alter their consciousness to, to get out of our own way for a little bit globally. Um, and it came to $4 trillion. So when you hear me talking about a trillion dollar revolution, that's the number we measured. Um, and what's interesting about kind of all of this and the, what I want the message to CEOs to be is you have to remember this is like this is fundamental heart neuronal hardwiring. This is how we work. This is how evolution designed us. The reason it is so difficult to train up skills like creative problem solving, critical thinking, the ability to take on wicked problems, right? Problems without easy binary solutions, collaboration, cooperation, is we keep trying to train up skills and what we need to be training up is states of mind. And Right. The companies who are on the leading edge, the ones who understand like the thing that people need to know, that's what high performance looks like right now. And all you're doing is using evolutionary biology and our hardwiring to our advantage. Right. That's all that's going on. It seems really fa fancy or counterintuitive or decadent or anything else. It's quite literally like using using our own built in high performance system, what evolution gave us for the types of jobs that it was designed for. Mm. 
So we need to get out of this um, post-industrial um, ways of working when we trained people to be the machines um, doing the physical world and we just need to go back and, and, and think about how creative people in guilds and, and farmers and all of these people worked when they tried to solve their solution and and take courage to say, okay, let's strip away all of that and what can we do to enable our, our people? I, I really enjoyed, I mean, of course, you put it a t thousand times better than I did uh, and I really enjoyed it and I think that you have put really the finger on actually what it would take for organizations to succeed um, and and you just listed them. So I really appreciate the, the work you're doing. I think it's absolutely vital. And um, thank you again, uh, Stephen, for coming on the podcast and to share it with, with the listeners. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.